title is Women and the Workplace, and our guest is Professor Joan C. Williams, Professor at University of California, Hastings, and founding director of Work-Life Law Center, and the author of many books, including Unbending Gender, and more recently, What Works for Women at Work, co-authored with her daughter, Rachel Dempsey. Make sure to follow Professor Joan Williams on Twitter, on at Joan C. Williams. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Workplace. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Tell us about yourself, your professional background and your organization, a a bit about the UC Hastings and Work-Life Law Center. Well, I'm a law professor at University of California in San Francisco, and I run the Center for Work-Life Law, which I founded about 15 years ago. We work on gender bias issues, with a focus on how to uh, how the experience of gender bias differs for women of different groups, women's advancement, and work-life issues with a focus on discrimination against adults with family responsibilities and providing stable schedules for hourly workers in the United States. All right. And um, you have a very... Uh, I, I see the website, it's... I mean, lots, lots of of in-depth academic research and uh, your staff, you have, like, in terms of the number of people working for you at the Work Life Center, what size of organization? We're nine. Nine, okay. All right. You are the founding director of the Work Life Law Center. So does that mean within the university you started up this project? Yes, I actually started up the project at a different university where I taught before, but I'm the founding director of the center. All right. Okay, so today we're talking about women and the workplace. Give us a brief outline of what you intend to share with us. Well, the the sad fact about women in the workplace is that women made extremely sharp gains into good jobs from about the mid-1970s until about the mid-1990s. And then the gender revolution stalled, and we haven't seen much movement since. So women now are much more likely to be in the workforce, but their progress into good jobs, whether those be white-collar or blue-collar, has stalled out to a... You you wrote the book Unbending Gender, which really was uh, a discourse on gender inequality and the lack of women leaders in the workplace. That was way back in 2000. And, um, and then just in 2014, you wrote uh, What Works for Women at Work. I have to admit, I haven't read that second one as yet. But in it, you deal with the four obstacles women commonly face at work and how to overcome them. So I wondered if we could talk about sort of your main themes first in unbending gender and then go on to the the themes that you dealt with the four obstacles in uh, what works for women at work. And then we'll talk a bit about intersectionality and other things as well. Well, uh, in unbending gender, I pointed out that we still define the ideal worker, someone who starts to work in early adulthood, works full time, full force 
pretty much for 40 years straight. And that that's a model that worked really, really well in 1960 when we had an economy of breadwinners marrying homemakers. It is a model that does not work well today because today most families with children have all adults in the labor force. And defining the ideal worker as someone who has someone at home taking care of the home front simply is not realistic for most families today. So that was really the focus um, of unbending gender. It was part of a series of um, work that uh, works that basically invented modern flexible schedules. And what we've seen in the past 15 years is that those flexible schedules that looked like they were going to take off in the 1990s, but then what we increasingly saw is what we call the flexibility state, that people who even take family leave or certainly ask for a part-time or flexible schedule very often encounter stigma, where sometimes their schedule creeps back up towards full-time, but whether or not it does, often people on flexible schedules find that they're seen as less committed and perhaps less competent than their ideal worker colleagues. And so for that reason, flexible schedules, at least in the United States, they've made a very big difference in some people's lives, but they have really never spread. Um, they're very uncommon among men, and they're, um, they remain pretty uncommon among women as well. So in the United States, we kind of have an all-or-nothing format for most jobs where either you're working full-time, which often in professional jobs means 50 or more hours a week, or you're out of the labor force. And unfortunately, that's not changed as much as I thought it would have when I wrote Unbending Gender, which was published in 2000, to the extent that um, what's happening in the United States is really happening through technology that very often women and increasingly younger men are leaving mainstream organizations because of this lack of outdated ideal worker um, pattern. So there, many women are leaving mainstream organizations and either um, working, gaining flexibility by either becoming consultants or doing things like working for ride-sharing apps or there's a now a sort of a new part of the economy where people can access workplace flexibility. Unfortunately, at least in the United States, they often give up benefits and a lot of job security in the problem. That's really the first problem that women face. That work-family problem has really never been resolved. Yeah, millennials will not be chained to their desks, but of course there are downsides to that, and it sort of 
masking a sort of situation of poverty, creeping poverty, so that women can't progress. And also in the UK, the law changed last year to introduce flexible working for everyone, you know, men and women. But just today I was at a meeting where they were talking about the fact that men are not taking up on it as well because it takes some time for culture to catch up with legislation. So so that's unbending gender. Do you want to move on now to what works for women at work? I was very interested in the four obstacles that you set out that women commonly face at work and how to overcome them. Yeah, what works for women at work reflects the fact that I have become so disheartened at the lack of progress on work-family issues that I the center doesn't really work on work-family work issues or for professional women anymore. We just haven't seen very much progress. And so I actually decided that working on gender bias would be easier. And so you copped out. I, I didn't cop out. <laughs> I just don't spend my time hitting against walls that aren't moving. I got you. Um, so, I mean, I the center basically invented the modern part-time policy, both in academia and in law firms in the United States, and, and played a central role in those early years of flexible policy. But it's clear that's not as effective. So what I did in Unbending Gender is I took really 30 years of social psychology studies documenting different patterns of gender bias. And then I did something very simple. I interviewed very successful women and I just recited to them the findings of social psychology studies and asked them whether any of that sounded familiar. 96% of the women I interviewed said yes. And these were very successful. So almost all of them had encountered one or more of these four basic patterns of gender bias. And then I asked a second very important question. I asked them, what, what's helped you in navigating through workplaces shaped by subtle bias? And then I wrote the book with my daughter because I think it's very important that conversations about gender bias be cross-generational because in many ways, my generation who came of age professionally in the 1970s and 80s are very different from the millennials. Today. So the, the four basic patterns, the first uh, we call prove it again, and that's that women often have to provide more evidence of competence than men in order to be seen as equally competent. One really common way this plays out is through a pattern, the technical name is stereotype expectancy, but it's something very simple. It's that a woman will mention an idea, people kind of gloss over it, and then a man will repeat it, and suddenly people notice it and he's given credit for it. So that's a classic prove-it-again pattern. The second pattern we call the tightrope, and that's that traditionally male jobs are seen as requiring masculine qualities. So women tend to behave in masculine ways in order to be seen as competent, but women are expected to be stem. And so women find themselves walking a tightrope between being seen as too masculine and so unlikable or too feminine and so not competent. The third pattern really goes back to the work-life issues. It's called the maternal wall, gender bias triggered by motherhood. Even if a mother does everything exactly the same than before she had children, the gender bias triggered by motherhood is extremely strong, very strong negative competence and commitment assumptions. And then finally, the final pattern is when gender bias against women fuels conflict among the women. And unfortunately, this is also very common. For example, if women receive the message that there's room for only one or a few women at the top, then of course they're going to try to undercut each other to be that one woman. That doesn't show that they're queen bees with a personality problem. It shows that they're ambitious women operating in an environment of gender bias. And then the book provides strategies for navigating each of those four patterns. 
Absolutely. And my daughter, who wrote it, wrote a very approachable, extremely funny book. So I, that's on my list of must-reads, of course. You're listening to The Workplace, the radio program about how to get into, get along, and get ahead at work. Produced and presented by me, NND, here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Now on DAB throughout Greater London and online via ResonanceFM.com. If you're just joining us, welcome. But we're just about halfway through today's episode, which is titled Women and the Workplace. And our guest is Professor Joan C. Williams, law professor at UC Hastings and the founding director of Work-Life Law Centre and the author of many books, including Unbending Gender and more recently, What Works for women at work, co-authored with her daughter, Rachel Dempsey. You can catch the repeat of today's episode on Tuesday at 10 a.m. BST. And if you're just joining us during the repeat, then you can catch up either by going to our Mixcloud page, mixcloud.com forward slash Resonance FM, or by going to our website, resonancefm.com, and clicking on the replay tab. Simply enter the words, the workplace, when the search tab appears. Or you can connect with me by searching at NNDWrites Twitter, where you can access this and previous episodes of The Workplace. That's at NNDWrites Twitter. And that is rights, as in what you do with a pen. And remember also to follow Professor Williams on Twitter, on at Joan C. Williams. And now, it's back to the program. One of the things that really impressed me with Unbending Gender was, and then with all your writing in general, because I follow you on Twitter and then you always comment, I, I read your comments and so on, and the articles you sort of flag up and, and highlight, you deal with intersectionality a lot. And that is a really important point for me as a non-white woman to hear a white woman in the mainstream giving a voice to the issues that women of other ethnicities face. So do you want to talk a bit on that? I see uh, I've read from your website and stuff all the the stereotypes around Latina women and Asian women in in various uh, fields, in, in the field of science and so on. Do you want to share anything on that? I studied women of color science professors, and I found that they reported higher levels of each of the four patterns of gender bias than white women. Also, their experience of each pattern differed in important ways. For example, 77% of the black women scientists reported experiencing prove-it-again problems, whereas only about 66% of the other three groups of women reported prove-it-again problems. So prove-it-again problems were more common for black Asian-American women had a dramatically different experience of tightrope problems. They reported sharply higher levels of pressure to behave in feminine ways and sharply higher levels of pushback when they didn't. So for the for Asian-American women, the tightrope is literally narrower. Latinas reported that when they behaved assertively, um, often they were seen as angry or emotional or even crazy. So in a context where um, a white woman might be called a, a witch or something worse, a Latina would be seen sometimes as angry. One woman said, I wasn't angry. I just wasn't deferential. But that's a very specific racialized gender stereotype. The maternal wall is equal opportunity. All groups report it. It's very strong and does not vary very much. Mothers encounter very significant and strong patterns of gender bias. But the tightrope, again, you had differential reporting by race. About 75% of, we also did a survey of women scientists in the United States, science professors, 
and about 75% of women in general said women in their environments generally support each other, but only about 56% of black women agree. So what you see is that it does not, it's not possible to study, quote, pure gender. Gender is experienced in a way that differs by your race. And so I think it's really important, even if you're just studying gender, not just to study white women. That's not studying gender. That's studying white women. Thank you so much for saying that. Wow. It's what I I keep saying. (laughs) Yeah. Go on. And I, -hmm. yeah, and I, I think it's the truth and I think it's very important because I think that very often corporate women's initiatives behind closed doors are called white women's initiatives. And I think sometimes women go, well, we all have gender in common. And at some level, that's true, but people experience the gender bias in different ways. And what I've discovered is that it doesn't take much to create an inclusive atmosphere. But if you start out from the assumption that every woman's experience is the same because she's a woman, that's the first step Thank you very much. I'm so glad you said it. I think, I mean, I always just gripe about it in general. Sometimes when I see, for example, a picture in a newspaper, so-and-so launches women in business or anything to do, and you see like a group of 50 women, and they're all one ethnicity. So the message to anyone, well, to me anyway, is always, what does it mean that only if you're this ethnicity that you are a woman? It sends a very strong message. Okay, I want to just tack back a little bit to when you were talking about the differences between the workplace for your daughter and for yourself. How do your daughter's workplace experiences compare to your own at her age? Um, It's actually not quite so much her workplace experience as it is just her take on being a woman. Um, Women my age, um, I entered professional life in the 1970s and I became one of the fairly early women law professors. And Women who were entering being a law professor, being a doctor, being in a coal mine, um, we tended to be a very specific type of woman on really the long tail of the distribution. We were very good at tuning out social cues that told us we should be housewives, which we ignored. We were very comfortable with being around predominantly men because that's what the workplace that we were facing And we were very comfortable with masculinity in a whole series of ways. Younger women, they're more on the fine curve. (laughs) They're more in the middle, not on the long tail. And in many ways, that's success. That means a much broader range of women is entering these these high-level jobs, all of which are traditionally male. But sometimes that um, creates what my daughter Rachel Dempsey calls generational conflict between her generation and mine, where the older women are just saying to the younger women, just suck it up and you know, do everything the men do in heels and backwards and be one of the guys. And the younger women look at that and they go like, well, you're not a role model. You all just turned into men. Why would I want that? <laughs> and so the older women say, basically say to the younger women, you're too feminine. And the younger women say to the older women, you're too masculine. This is a classic tug-of-war problem. It's really tightrope bias passed through from woman to woman. And I really did not want to write a book in which I, as a woman of a certain generation, 
was giving advice to younger women that they would simply tune out that way. All right. Now, over the past 16 years, Work Life Law, the center, has been helping to reframe the discussion and reshape or reform the agenda regarding women in the workplace. And you said, uh, you, you touched on it at the very beginning of the program, that you lament that progress seems to have stalled. Now, I want to say, given all this commendable work and advice that the center does and, you know, the wider network of uh, women's organizations and feminist groups throughout, if across the professions there still remains a high female attrition rate for women among the senior ranks compared to the numbers that graduate, what other issues are yet to be explored to remedy the situation? I know you sort of said, like, you sort of got exasperated and you just switched your attention to gender bias. But do you think perhaps there are other things to look into that just, you know, stones that have not been uh, turned or looked under as yet? No, I think we know exactly why we have high levels of attrition among women. It's number one, the work-family issue, and number two, these four patterns of gender bias. And I think we, up to this time, have not had very effective tools for addressing um, either problem. Now, the, on the gender bias front, what we're, we have launched is an initiative called the Bias Interrupters Working Group. Because if, if an organization has a disproportionately low um, number of women or people of color at the top, often the bias patterns are actually race-gender patterns. And the solutions also often are similar or identical. The solution is to take this huge literature on gender bias and racial bias to ask people in your organization if any, this is what the research shows, is any of that happening here, to develop some hypotheses about how bias might be playing out. Then to develop an objective metric to measure what people think is happening, whether it's actually happening, and then to put in place what we call a bias interrupter. And that is a tweak to one of your basic business systems, sourcing, hiring, performance evaluation, etc. So to tweak those business systems in a way that interrupts the gender and racial bias. And you can do that by changing the system in relatively modest ways. But organizations have not even begun to do that. And that's really the frontier and one of the frontiers that that the Center for Work-Life Law is very actively exploring now. All right. So I wanted to ask what would be the main challenges that lie ahead and what's your prognosis? But I think that pretty much sums it up for organizations to put in place bias interrupters, would you say? All right, great. Professor Joan Williams, thanks so much for being with us here on The Workplace to discuss women and the workplace. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Thanks to my guest, Professor Joan C. Williams. And that's it for today's episode of The Workplace, the program about how to get into, get along, and get ahead at work. Produced and presented by me, NND.